Hello, and welcome to Breast Cancer Conversations, a podcast brought to you by survivingbreastcancer.org. I'm Laura Carfing, breast cancer survivor and founder of survivingbreastcancer.org, a nonprofit organization providing community, education, and resources to empower those diagnosed with breast cancer and their caregivers from day one and beyond. Our podcasts are made possible in part by corporate sponsor, Store My Tumor. In today's episode, I am so thrilled to be speaking with Crystal Hensley. She is an amazing source of energy, super positive, does not let anything bother her, and takes the world by storm. Welcome to the conversation. Yeah, everything's going well. Um, I really don't have any... I mean, I feel normal, I guess. Excellent. <laughs> like normal, I don't know what normal is. <laughs> it's still a, a positive story. And, and as bad as yours was, you really made it positive. I, and I said that to Laura. We look to, uh, we look to inject positivity into the fabric of this little heinous uh, uh, diagnosis that uh, uh, typically it's women that go through it, but a number of men as well. Valued so much about my doctors because they were very because I was diagnosed in Louisiana when I was in grad school. Right. And my doctors were very upfront with me. They didn't sugarcoat anything with me, and I, I mean, I appreciated that. So I had a salpingo ophorectomy. Okay. Um, which means it's the removal of both of your ovaries and then your both the your fallopian tubes. Right. Okay. Okay. So yeah, that's I think the fact that you're one so open about that too. I think you're the first person who has shared their story um, along those lines with us, which I really appreciate. It must have been three weeks ago. I just started lectures off. Oh, you just started. Oh. Okay. How are you yeah, managing? Yeah, I just started it, and my um, nurse, my PA told me when I went to the oncologist before I started it, because I'm on a, I was on Effexor at a 37.5, primarily for hot flashes, yeah. mm-hmm. um, but they gave me 75 milligrams, and I was like, well, I don't think I need to take that right now, and she was like, no, I'm going to give it to you because the lecture's all, we don't know what it's going to do, and lo and behold, like a week and a half ago, I started getting really moody, and I, for like three days, I thought I was going crazy. So I'm on 75 now. Yes, yes. Oh my God, absolutely. I'm the same way. I'm, I think, at a much higher dose at this point, but of the Effexor. Um, yeah. But like not in a bad way. And like, so yeah. I've tried three different, or I guess all of the aromatase inhibitors. So I kept having all of these very negative depressive side effects. But so by the time I'm now like third time's a charm, we're on letrozole. I just told my doctors, like, we have to make this work. We have to figure out a way to like, keep me on this drug for 10 years because I don't want the cancer coming back. Right. And so I now like openly, like I see a psychiatrist and I'm on the effects or I think I'm at like actually 300 milligrams. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's okay. Like if that's what I need to be on right. to get through it, like, and there's still some like dips and some valleys and stuff, but oh, yeah. it's better than the alternative, yeah. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so it's okay. Tell me how you really feel. <laughs> Well, and I, I drive her nuts because I'm, I'm probably the most optimistic person she's ever met in her life, and she just thinks that I come from Mars. Um, uh, but the reality is I, I, I've always celebrated life from the time I was, you know, a, a preteen. Just I love what's going on. I just do. I'm just wide awake and energetic and, 
and loving life and, and very optimistic no matter what hits us in the face. And uh, uh, I learned to fight at a young age, and so <laughs> I continue. <laughs> I continue to coach and counsel to you know yeah. to, to, to punch it back. And 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 Karen, there was one person on the uh, on the internet um, on our social media the other day, and and she was saying uh, how um, how someone was afraid, and and uh, and she gave that story that she was on a. A diving board when she was very young and she was petrified and this this uh, uh, older lady was kept swimming by and swimming by and swimming by and finally she she swam over and she said you have to jump and she said but I'm afraid she said it's okay to be afraid <laughs> and it just tugged at my heart I said this is brilliant I think it was on Twitter and yeah, I, I, ju it. I jumped all over it and then I said, uh, it is okay to be afraid. That's part of the, that's part of the process. And mm -hmm. it's actually yeah. part of the healing stuff. It's just, you know, get it, get into it, drive it, drive forward, put the fears behind you, keep them tucked in a little back pocket and then just go. Mm -hmm. It's, yeah. it's, I guess yeah. it's part of the healing process to go through it. And, um, yeah. you know, it's okay. It's just okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Give ourselves permission. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so Crystal, okay, I want to hear all about it. I know we've exchanged like so many emails and everything, but even before you get into like your story um, on this particular topic, like tell me like you're, you're finishing your master's program, you're in it, you took a pause, where are you from, where did you grow up, where's your family? <laughs> so I, I guess I'll start, I'm actually from a small town, it's a coastal town in North Carolina. Um, it's called Jacksonville, but it's, I don't know if y'all heard of Camp Lejeune. It's a really big Marine base. Marine base, you bet. Yep. So, um, <laughs> Jacksonville is basically where Camp Lejeune's at. Okay. Um, so I grew up here, but I've, I was actually in the military. I was in the Air Force when I, I went to college for two years and I went to the Air Force. Oh, wow. Um, nice. and then I came home and that's when I went to grad school in New Orleans um, I have, well, I have my bachelor's in public health and then I went to grad school for public health and tropical medicine. Um, I actually researched HIV there at a, um, primate center. Um, but I actually, I was diagnosed the, the summer before my last semester of grad school and I didn't know what to do because I didn't want to stay in Louisiana because all my family's here. I wanted to be treated with my family, like around them. Mm -hmm. So I came back home and somehow I got my professors to let me, because I didn't want to take a break because I know sometimes <coughs> if you take a break, you might not want to go back or it'll take a long time to go back. So sometimes, somehow I got my professors to let me still take my classes just at a bar and I would call in like if I had projects like I would do them over Skype and I took my test at a local college here nice. so I actually stayed in school but I went back to Louisiana in January after my last round in chemo and finished up there and then graduated there in the last Beautiful. semester so wow that's amazing. And yeah. I'm sure to some degree too, maybe in hindsight, like it was probably good to keep your mind off of everything else that you were going through in terms of active treatment. Like I hear that a lot where people are like, I needed something to distract me. Yeah. And that's, I mean, it was a good thing because I would sit there during chemo and study like for my test and 
it really helped. It helped the time go by faster. Right. Um, but then, of course, when I went back to New Orleans, it was that same, like, kind of PTSD, like, aftermath. Because yeah. I was by myself, and I was trying to finish grad school. So it kind of went downhill for a couple months. <laughs> 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 but it got better. <laughs> of course. So you completed the master's program? Yeah, I completed my master's. And I'm actually, I'm back home now because I had applied to law school. I was actually supposed to have gone this past August, um, but I just didn't think I was ready. And I'm not one of those people, I don't want to rush into something. Law school is kind of expensive. So I didn't want to spend thousands of dollars and that not be what I wanted to do. Yeah. So... Right now, I'm trying to figure out if I'm going to, because I deferred it. So I'm trying to figure out if I'm going to go in August or if I'm going to look for research jobs. Yeah. Hmm. Just kind of taking my time. Yeah. <laughs> Being on the other side now, I see how, I mean, it's very common, I think, yes. for relationships to break up. But before that, I guess it's because, I mean, Hollywood dramatizes. You see all these movies and these couples get closer and... In reality, that's not <laughs> exactly how that happens. I mean, there are relationships, obviously, that do get closer. Right. Um, but especially fresher relationships, I mean, it takes a huge toll. It's not something you imagine going through in a relationship when you're in your 20s. Of course. Right. So, right. No, yeah. that's, that's our friend D actually, she broke up with her boyfriend when she got diagnosed. She was like, I got to take care of my health. I cannot handle you. You're getting out. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and that's when yeah. I was first, I remember the, when I, around the time I was first diagnosed, um, I told him because he broke, like he hung up on me the day I was diagnosed. <gasps> yeah. And I think it was just, he, couldn't handle it I don't know but I remember telling him I was like listen I'm not gonna be offended like if you walk away like that's fine Mm -hmm. he wanted to stay but he I mean obviously we know how that ended he didn't stay the whole time right right no it's very it's very hard and 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 with Ginger the movie I said just as another uh, 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 a piece about that she had a boyfriend at the time it kind of was fizzling away and she gets this new boyfriend who ultimately she marries and he's the producer of this movie and um he's just a fabulous caregiver as was it turns out her her mother and and best friend who uh, just kind of rallied around her and, and they showed the ups and downs and that's that was the beauty of the movie to me the the, uh, the, the beauty of that was that caregiving piece, helping her through as a collective team. And then her discussions with her psychotherapist just had me reaching for tissues. It's just like yeah. she, she was very understanding and she was very warm and, and she was very encouraging. And she just told her, it's okay to feel that way. And right. I'm just like, oh. He's trying to yes. learn, essentially. And yes. I think that's really... Yes. And that's where I kind of had to tell myself when my ex, like, first walked away, I was like, he's a horrible person. Like, <laughs> he's no good. She's smiling <laughs> while she says this, folks. I know you can't see her, but <laughs> she's smiling. <laughs> As the years have gone by, though, I kind of look at it and I'm like, you know what? I don't think he's a horrible person. I don't think he could handle it. And yeah. Some people just can't. And that's okay. Yeah. But I don't want those type of people in my life because there are people who can handle it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, so absolutely. 
recently, more recently, two of my really good friends who I've grown up with, we've become more distant because they don't really understand. I always think of my life as like my pre-cancer life and my after-cancer, and I'm a different person. And um, I don't, they just, it comes down to they just don't understand. And they're also one of those people, like, they just, they can't handle it and they don't understand the type of person I am now. Like, and I haven't, I mean, I've barely heard from them since my recent surgery. So, but those are relationships. I mean, you grow, like even in normal life, you grow, you change, like you don't stay friends with the same people the rest of your whole life. So exactly. Correct. All right. So take us back to (laughs) like two years ago, right? Like your diagnosis, how you, found out you had cancer and like the whole we'll, we'll do our best to like yeah be quiet for a second <laughs> so that's actually a really cool story I always tell people and they're always like oh I have the shivers yeah so I actually was in the middle of a fellowship a research fellowship that summer um researching HIV and I was also Um, working on an HIV vaccination project for the NIH. And um, I I think it was June. It must have been June. I felt a lot because I've always checked because it's so prevalent in my family. Um, My grandmother died. She had it the first time when she was 40. She died when she was 50. Mm. Um, My second cousin died when she was 25. I mean, there's been a lot. Um, So I've always done breast self-examination so I fell a lump one day in June and I thought it was related to my period because it was around the same time so I was like it's nothing like but it's so funny because now thinking back on it like I had a gut feeling that night like I couldn't go to sleep I didn't go to sleep that night so I think I knew deep down inside it probably wasn't normal um so I waited and I actually went home I came back to North Carolina for July 4th and I remember telling my mom, and I told my ex-boyfriend, who was obviously my boyfriend at the time, and I told his mom, and they all said, they were like, it's nothing, like, just go get it checked out for peace of mind. So I came back from July 4th, and it's funny, because my mom actually had, my mom's a teacher, and she had a conference down in New Orleans, mm-hmm. so she was there the weekend after July 4th. And I hung out with her all weekend, her and some of her other colleagues. And she was flying out on Monday. And she told me that day, she was like, just call them, like, see if they can get you in. So I called them and they got me in. And she was like, well, do you want me to stay? Like, I can stay. I can take another flight out. And I was like, no, it's fine. Like, it's not a big deal. So I went to the my gynecologist and he checked me. And he was like, no, it's probably just a cyst. He said, but because your family history is so extensive, like, we'll send you to get a mammogram just in case. He was like, but I don't even know if we'll do one on you because you're so young. So that was on a Monday. Wednesday, I went to go get a mammogram, and they ended up doing it, and they did an ultrasound. And this is where it gets kind of weird. Not weird, but interesting. So I had to go to the bathroom. So I went to the bathroom and I come back in the room after they did the ultrasound room. And there were the two ultrasound techs 
a doctor, the office manager, the mammographer, like all these people in the room. And they were like, no, it's okay. It's, this is normal. You just didn't have anybody with you. So we all wanted to be here. And in the back of my mind, I was like, this isn't normal. There's right? like five people in here. So I sat down and they're all like circling me. And the radiologist was talking to me and he was like, well, we saw something in the ultrasound and the mammogram. And I just remember him saying it could be cancer, but we're not sure. And I have no idea what he said after that. I just remember like smiling and nodding my head. And um, so he left the room and the office manager came up to me and she was like, do you understand like what he said? And I was like, so he said basically I could have cancer. And she said, yeah. And of course I start crying. Of course. Of course. I mean, to even say those words out loud, it took me the longest time to like articulate the word cancer. Like yeah. it just wasn't part of my vocabulary. Oh, yeah. So they, um, I'm sitting in there bawling and the lady, the office manager was like, you might want to call your family. Because I mean, my family's back in North Carolina. My mom had gone back. Um, so I called my mom. And I remember telling her that, and all I remember, it breaks my heart still to this day, um, I remember her crying, I could hear her crying, and I heard her, like, she took the phone away, and she handed it to my dad, and she was like, I can't talk to her right now, like, I can't talk, because my, I mean, my mom's mom died of it when she was, my mom was only 25, sure. um, so my dad got the phone, and I talked to him for a minute, and... Um, the office manager came back in and she was like, we're going to get you in tomorrow to do um, a, bi- a biopsy. She was like, I just want it to be done as quick as possible so that you have some peace of mind, basically. So that was Wednesday. I went in Thursday for the biopsy and the um, nurse pra- practitioner is the one that did it. And I remember her telling me like, I can usually, because she had done so many biopsies, she was like, I can usually tell, like, if the tissue doesn't look normal. She was like, so I'll let you know, like, kind of what I think. And so she did it. She did the three-punch biopsy. So the very first punch, she told me, like, she was very honest. She was like, it doesn't look normal to me. She was like, I mean, it could be, but I'm just, I just want to be honest with you. It doesn't look normal. So, of course, I start crying again. And can you define what the three-punch biopsy is for our listeners also? So, basically, what they do, um, they mark your skin from where they do an ultrasound, where the um, lump is, and they mark your skin around it so that they know where to do the punch at. And it's basically, it looks like a long, like, long straight hole puncher basically and they do they numb your skin obviously um so they put the hole puncher on the marks and they just punch it and it brings the skin up like part of the um lump up with it Hmm. essentially so um she did that and she told me it didn't look normal and they basically told me that I needed to call somebody like my family and they said that they didn't want to diagnose me by myself. Um, so they told me it would be in my best interest to call somebody to fly to Louisiana, basically. So when I left the office, I I stopped crying. But when I, as soon as I left the office, I started crying. I called my mom. And I was like, I'm going to lose my hair. They're going to take my boobs. Like, this is going to be horrible. Oh, 
my dad was on a plane and he got to Louisiana Thursday night. Wow. Um, and I remember Friday, they told me they would call Friday because I was still kind of joking around with them. And I was like, listen, how fast are these biopsy results going to be in? Because I have a biostats test and I need to be calm. And she was like, well, we'll try to get it as soon. Like, we'll try to get it tomorrow. She said, but we'll call you either way. So Friday afternoon is when I finally got a phone call from them. And they told me to come in. I So that day I was diagnosed. I had stage one invasive ductal carcinoma. Um, so I came in. As soon as she called, I just remember, like, sitting on my bed. <laughs> oh. And it's so ironic because that's the same bed. Like, I studied some of the world's, like, deadliest diseases. And I'm sitting here being diagnosed with breast cancer when I was 27. Oh. So, um I went into the office, my dad and I went into the office, and that's when she went over things in a little bit more detail. Um, she actually, I did my BRCA test that day because she said because of my family history, she felt as if um, I may be BRCA positive, and we didn't know because everybody that had died of breast cancer in my family, they died before the BRCA testing came into existence. Um, so she did my bracket testing that day. Basically I spit in a tube and they sent it off to a lab. Um, so we went over everything that day. The following Monday is when I had my MRI and then I had a PET scan on Wednesday the following week. And then as soon as my PET scan was done, my dad and I actually drove back to North Carolina mm. and that's where I ended up being treated. I went to Chapel Hill um, met with their doctors, and then that's when we came up with all of my treatment plans was in Chapel Hill. Yeah, wow, that's that's an incredible story. Thank you so much for like reliving that. I know, just like talking about it is, I mean, you're so you can remember every detail, right? I feel the same way. Yeah. It's like <laughs> as if I was there, you know. And I know. I'm I'm surprised, and I would love to hear your like your take on it. Um, you know, we started off this conversation just saying, you know, when radiologists and technicians can tell us the more information, the better to kind of rip the Band-Aid off and not to sugarcoat anything. Um, what were you thinking when they were telling you that they do think that this is cancerous? Um, just kind of playing devil's advocate, you know, my, my mind's going, well, we don't know for sure, right? You need to get the biopsy results back. But how Correct. could they be so sure just by looking at, like, the imaging and it sounds like because of their experience of what these like cells look like, if they look abnormal, they felt pretty confident about it. Is that the sense that you were getting? Yeah, that's the sense. Cause they showed me, um, the mammographer ended up telling me after the radiologist came in and talked to me, she was like, there's so on my mammogram, why they were so certain, which is why my nurse practitioner, she showed me the same thing when I went in for my biopsy. Um, you can see the tumor on my mam um, mammogram picture, and you can also see, so there's these micro calcifications that are forming around the tumor, mm. and I think I'm correct in saying this. I'm not positive. So micro calcifications, I think they're relatively normal. Um, I think people get them in their breasts sometimes. But what struck them is mine were, it was like my tumor was a magnet and the microcalcifications were going towards the tumor. 
So that's why they thought that the tumor was cancerous because of those microcalcifications forming, like going towards the tumor. They kind of made like a little, it was like the tumor was a nucleus and the mm-hmm. microcalcifications were like a cell wall. They were just surrounding it. Yeah, absolutely. So. Well, that makes sense. I was diagnosed with stage 2B and when I, um, it was interesting what you're mentioning also about kind of self-breast exams and for me, I felt a lump. Um, actually, William felt it like years ahead of time and we just talked, well, maybe he wasn't pushy or I was in denial. I don't know what it was, but it was one of those things where I'm like, oh yeah, I do self-exams and that has always been there. So it's nothing new. So I was like in the sense of like, oh yeah, that's always been there. I just never thought twice about it. And then I was like, oh my God, like, I mean, like I said, cancer was never part of my vocabulary before all of this. And so I didn't need to think it was not part of my family history. Um, No one was concerned. Doctors kept talking to me about just dense tissue and, you know, kind of one thing led to another. And then finally, it sounds similar to what you were describing. Um, where like the cells kind of pull into each other. And so what concerned me is that all of a sudden I started noticing like dimpling on my skin and like the literal, literal, like pulling in and indentations of like ripples on my breast. And I'm like, well, that is definitely not normal. And so that's like the red, red flag of like, okay, now I need to go get checked and just make sure, you know, and again, too, I was like, well, I know I've been working out more, but this isn't like what it's supposed (laughs) to look like. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, so that's interesting to kind of know symptoms. And then, you know, I've talked to women also where they don't have these, like, physical symptoms either, and it's much harder to detect at an earlier stage. So I just like talking about it to let people and our listeners know, like, all of the symptoms that can be potentially visible or what you feel or don't feel. And that's – I got lucky. There were a couple things that actually really helped me. And that's why I'm such a big advocate about knowing family history because that's the only reason my gyne- or my gynecologist was even concerned is because of my family history. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why I was concerned. If I wouldn't, if I would have felt that lump and not had any family history, I probably would have just brushed it off and been like, "Man, yeah, it's normal. It happens." Right. Um, but it was actually interesting because I had breast implants before I had cancer. Um, I had breast augmentation probably about three years before I was diagnosed. Hmm. And I remember my dad asking the nurse practitioner, he was like, well, could her implants cause this? Like, is that a reason? And I remember her saying, she was like, this is actually going to sound really strange. She was like, but it's kind of cool in the same sense. She was like, my, so my tumor was so far back in my breast um, that my implant was actually pushing the tumor up. So the oh. only reason I could really fill the tumor, because it was, I mean, it was stage one, so it was relatively small considering. Mm-hmm. Um, she was like, the only reason you could even fill the tumor is because of that implant pushing it up. Wow. She was like, without that breast implant, you would have probably been stage three or four by the time you would have been able to actually feel it. Wow. So, yeah. That's I thought incredible. that was really cool. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. That is interesting. And so I feel like I know so much about, like, breast um, reconstruction surgery, but with breast implants and this augmentation you're describing, does the implant go, like, over tissue? Do they actually remove tissue? Or do you mind just, like... I'm very naive about the situation. Yeah. So they did, um, when I got my breast augmentation, I think it was 2013, 
they still, my implants now are under my muscle and that's what they were then too. Okay. Um, so they didn't have to take any tissue. They literally just kind of made a pocket and stuffed the implant in there. Got it. Um, which ended up benefiting me when I had my mastectomy because they were able, because I already had that pocket, they were able to do direct to implant. So I didn't have to have expanders. I didn't have to wait. They, I mean, when I came out of surgery from my mastectomy, I had implants. Yeah. So that's a good step. So yeah. Yeah. I mean, for what it's worth. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and so when did you find out about your BRCA results? I actually found that out, um, it must have been three or four weeks after they did the testing. Um, so when I went to Chapel Hill, I didn't know my status yet. And they, I remember my initial appointment, because you have to see everybody. I mean, I was there for probably like seven hours. Um, and I remember the surgeon, and then there was a radiologist that came in there. And I remember them telling me, or a radiation oncologist, that's who it was. They wanted to initially do a lumpectomy. And I was like, no, like I knew going in what I wanted. Okay. And I was like, no, I don't want to do that. Like, I want you to take them. I don't want a lumpectomy. Like, I just want them gone. And at the time, we didn't even know my BRCA status. Um, and literally three days after that appointment, I found out I was BRCA positive. So I was like, well, I just made the best decision yes. I could have made. Because had I had a lumpectomy, I would have, I mean, I would have had to eventually have a mastectomy yeah. anyway. So Totally. And how did you choose um, when you were getting like your genetics testing? Did you just have them screen for BRCA or did you do a larger panel of various genes? They did a larger panel. Um, so I'm BRCA1 positive and then they found another mutation that was of unsignificant variants. I think it, I'm trying to remember what it's called. I think it's like SKY11 or STHY11. I can't remember, but it was of unsignificant variant. I even remember because they did my, um, after my mastectomy, of course they took my tumor and did the oncotype. Um, mm -hmm. and I came back because I was estrogen, like highly estrogen and progesterone positive. I think my estrogen positivity was like 94% okay. and my progesterone I think was like 90%. So it's pretty high. Um, so they did my oncotype score and I remember coming back like in the middle, like well, you could do chemo, you could not do chemo. And my oncologist told me, and I was kind of, she's more of an aggressive doctor. Um, and I remember her telling me, she was like, well, she said, these are the statistics. And she told me, she was like, unfortunately though, like with your age, your these statistics may not necessarily include you wholly because they are, majority of them are older. So they only have like, maybe 20, 30 years to live. She was like, you're 27. Like, hopefully right. you have 50, 60 years to live. Um, so that's, she kind of pushed me towards the chemo because of that, because of the fact, like, yeah, younger people are obviously a little bit more underrepresented, underrepresented in these studies because there's not as many right. younger people who are actually diagnosed. So exactly. there seems to be more and more, though. Yeah, no, there 
Yeah, we definitely we, we got in a fight with some friends up in Canada who were pushing back against the Canadian task force for uh, their they're drawing the line for mammograms at 50 and we joined forces with a, a, a world-renowned um, a radiologist out of British Columbia and uh, I caught some of her info on LinkedIn and I said would you mind if we publish this and she said no don't do that she said I've got a lot more for you and she she sent us <laughs> volumes of stuff and, yeah. and we became pretty good friends and we actually did a podcast with her and, and um, I said, we've met so many young women in their 20s, in their 30s. But I feel lucky to have that some sense of relief to know that I'm BRCA positive because essentially that's probably a large part of why I was diagnosed so young. Sure. But I've met so many young women who have no family history. They don't have genetic mutations. And um, a good friend of mine, she's like that. And it's almost harder on her because she doesn't really understand. Like, she doesn't know why right. she was diagnosed at such a young age. Whereas I have a mutation, so. Right. There's almost some sort of, like, resolution that you kind right. of come to with, like, okay, well, there's there's a link. Um, you know, William and I were strict vegans, and I got diagnosed with cancer. And I'm like. I, and before being a vegan, I was, like, a vegetarian for 10 years. Like, there has right. not been, like, red meat in my life since, like, you know, I could remember. And we eat broccoli and the kale, and you read all these things on the internet of, like, you know, the five best foods to fight cancer. And I'm like, I've done it all. Like, what the hell, right? And, you know, we're, we were young and active, and I know you're um, younger than me, even. And I think we... You know, I kind of classify everyone like who's under 40, which is like the anomaly. Yeah. But then to have like someone in your boat under 30 being diagnosed, I would love to hear from your opinion. We talk a lot about, you know, it's just different being younger, different choices we have to make, different, you know, lifestyle things. Um, I would just love to hear from you. Can you articulate that a little bit more compared to, I think, the other swing is like women postmenopausal who've already like had children, gotten married, different things. Um, it's much harder, I think, for people under 40, let alone under 30. Can you speak more about that experience for you? Um, so obviously, well, when I was diagnosed, I haven't had children yet. Um, and I wasn't married. I mean, obviously I was in, we had been together for like a year and a half, two years when I was diagnosed. Um, but we weren't, I mean, I was in grad school. He just graduated. Like, he just started his career. So we weren't even in the place to even think about children. Mm -hmm. um, so I think that was the biggest. When I was diagnosed and we had decided that I was going to do chemo, um, obviously there's a chance when you do chemo you could lose ovarian function and it could not come back. So my oncologist told me that I might want to go speak with a fertility specialist. And I was like, I'm not even ready for kids. Like, that's expensive, first of all. I'm a grad student. I don't have that type of money. So I was, like, adamant. I was like, I'm not going. Like, I don't even want to talk about this. Mm -hmm. And she finally told me. She was like, listen, I'm not saying I'm not going to start chemo without you doing it. But I would really feel better if you would just go and talk to them. So I ended up going and talking to them, and they actually, um, obviously, harvesting eggs, it is expensive, but I did not know, and I'm really surprised because a lot of survivors I talked to, or even people going through treatment, um, none of them have any idea about this, and I'm right. surprised because my oncologist and my fertility specialist 
were so adamant about about this. Um, but my fertility specialist told me, she was like, you know, Livestrong has a program where they pay for a portion of the procedure. Um, Walgreens Specialty Pharmacy then comes in and they pay for the medications. Like, basically, you're responsible for the portion they don't pay and then, like, the ultrasounds. So it went from being $12,000 to I think I paid $3,500, which is still a lot, mm -hmm. but it's not a deal breaker like $12,000 would have been. Sure. Um, so I went and talked to them about it, and they did. So they harvested my eggs. And um, one of the things I thought was really cool was if I ever choose to use my eggs, um, I – have the choice once they're fertilized into embryos, I can get them tested for the BRCA mutation. Mm -hmm. wow. And if I choose, I don't have to use the ones that are positive for that mutation. Um, I know there's probably like some controversy surrounding that, but that would end that mutation in my family, right. like my immediate family line. Yeah. Um, so I think that was the biggest thing. And I mean, they told me, because I had to go see a gynecologic oncologist because of my BRCA status. And I've been told for since then, like, it's not ideal for me to carry a baby because they think it's kind of contradicting because I'm taking these drugs to take all the estrogen out of my body and my progesterone out of my body just to get pregnant. And I mean, you need progesterone to have a baby so it would make it my hormones essentially go crazy mm -hmm. um so I think that was the biggest part is that I just hadn't had children yet and most people when you're diagnosed older I mean most of them have children so they don't I remember going to a support group in New Orleans and they had all they were I think I was the youngest one in the support group by like 20 years mm -hmm. um and they had all even the lady who was 47 I mean, she considered herself young, which is, yeah, I mean, that's still young. Yeah. <laughs> and it's all, all mindset. Them, <laughs> right. Um, all of them had children and they were just a, kind of in a different phase of my, their lives. And I'm sitting here like no kids. I'm trying to get through grad school, like mm -hmm. living on a budget because I have grad school type money. Mm -hmm. um, so it was a little different, but the, I mean, the children part was probably the most because you have to make these decisions and you have to make them fairly quick. Cause I know when I had to harvest my eggs, I had to decide basically in about two days what I wanted to do because you have to be on a certain timeline with your chemo. Right. So. Now did you have to take any hormonal pills or anything in preparation for harvesting your eggs? I did. I had to, I was on a series of shots that I took every night um, I can't exactly, it might've been like, go, I can't remember what the shots were called, but I had to, I did that. And also because of me being estrogen positive, my estrogen never got as high as a normal person going through fertility treatments because they had me on leptorzol at the same time, Oh, okay. um, to make sure my estrogen didn't get as high mm -hmm. as it normally would have. Um, so I was on that and then I had the procedure. Um, I think I was, I did the shots for about a week, I think before my procedure. Yeah. So yeah. I remember my oncologist asked me, um, you know, having a little bit of that conversation about kids, 
And I was diagnosed at the age of 34, so not married yet, no kids yet, dating William, but like, you know, we're like co-equal partners, but yeah, know, I still bring it up that there's no ring yet, but... <laughs> daily, daily. But, um, you know, we have a witness. Um, but, you know, we were sitting in the doctor's office and, you know, we've kind of had these conversations about kids and they've always been like, no, not really, no, not really. But there was always in my mind, like, a hope, right? There was like... Well, the answer is not 100% no, but like we're pretty much not having kids. But when we were talking to the oncologist, making these decisions before starting chemotherapy, it was like, well, if you want to talk to a fertility specialist, we should do this beforehand. And I think also because of his concern of like my staging and wanting to get like chemo started sooner than later, it was like, or we can like put your port in on Wednesday and you can start this like immediately. And I think I just turned to you and was like, so you're cool without kids? Like, like, I guess the answer, I'm making a choice right now that, I mean, to your point, you have to make it very quickly in a short amount of time. And, you know, it's not something I regret not doing, but I now just now I'm living with the fact that, okay, I've made this decision and I just kind of want to meet more people also who are like, okay, I've had cancer, I've had chemotherapy and biologically I'm not going to be able to carry children. Um, you remind me that there's still other ways of having children or pets and stuff, <laughs> yeah. like, you know, adoption or foster caring or so many other ways as well. Um, that I think kind of weigh heavily on, on us in general, just like being younger. And I think for me too, it's challenging being thrown through menopause. Um, I, I don't think that was really brought up in a very direct way when you get diagnosed with cancer. Uh, I mean, it's kind of lumped in with, like, the side effects. Um, right. But it's, like, a long-term major side effect. <laughs> like, your it hair is. does come back. Like, other things do come back. <laughs> yeah, and that's – I'll talk to, like, my aunt or even my mom sometimes, and I'll talk about, like, menopause, and they'll be like, well, I'm in menopause. And I'm like, yeah, but you're, like, 30 years older than I am. Right. Like, it's mm-hmm. kind of different when you're thrust into menopause at 27. And, mm-hmm. I mean, as – at this point, because my ovaries are out, like, there's no going back. Yeah. So. So tell me a little bit more. I'm interested to hear. So when you made your choice to have your ovaries and fallopian tubes removed, you are still on hormonal pills as well, just because your body can still produce estrogen even without those organs? Is that? Right. Okay. Yeah. So I'm, um, that kind of played into some of my decision to, um, Prior to getting my ovaries out, I had taken tamoxifen for a little while, um, but the tamoxifen was actually giving me ovarian cysts, which I don't mm. think is a very common side effect, but I don't think I'm very common. <laughs> <laughs> so I was getting ovarian cysts, so I came off the tamoxifen. They started me on Lupron, mm-hmm. um, which shut your ovaries down anyways. Yeah, I'm still and, getting that shot too. <laughs> right. And I hated the Lubron, and I think I gained about 10 pounds on it. <laughs> and um, it just got to the point where when I didn't feel like being in menopause anymore, I wouldn't go in for my Lubron shot. And for some reason, I know some people, like I've talked to some of my friends, and they're like, that terrifies me. Like if I miss one dose of my tamoxifen, like I'm freaking out. Mm. And I don't know if it's just, the type of person I am, I don't have that fear. Like I, I'm fearful of course of like my cancer coming back, but I don't freak out if I don't take my medicine one day or like, mm-hmm. so it was kind of more of a, 
I knew they didn't want me to carry baby anyways. Like I had my eggs. There was essentially really, if they were going to shut my ovaries down anyways with Lupron, there was really no point in me having my ovaries. So it was more of like a security thing for me too. Cause obviously without my ovaries, that takes away a good portion of my estrogen. Hmm. Um, But they did, it takes away a portion, but the, Letters all I'm on, I like to think of it as like my insurance. Like, yeah, that's just in case there's the little bit of estrogen that's still hanging out. So, yeah, no, I like the way you frame that. It's got me thinking now, like, maybe I should consider that type of surgery and procedure as well because I'm still going in every 12 weeks for a shot. That right. Kind of, I don't know, maybe it's because I haven't, I, I don't know. It's, it's a personal decision, but oh, there's so many things to consider in the weight gain. Like, that's a whole nother podcast to, like, complain <laughs> yeah. about and <laughs> maybe over, like, a and glass of wine of some sort and just be like, what is going yeah. on? <laughs> I remember ask I, – well, I asked my gynecologic oncologist when I went in before my ovary removal surgery, and I was like, I'm not – I don't feel like I'm normal. I said, I'm not – I feel like most people would be upset over the fact that you know, those are your ovaries. Mm-hmm. Those, I mean, I can never naturally have children. Um, and I feel like most people would be upset over that the most. And I was upset over, I was like, am I going to gain weight? Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> That's horrible. And um, what he told me though, which I don't know how true this is, but it sounds true. I mean, it sounds legit. Um, he told me that on Lupron, you gain more weight than you do because it has something to do with the progesterone in the shot. It has something to do with the chemicals in it. I am um, so going I, to look this up. That sounds, yeah, that sounds legit too. I like it. Well, that's what, and I've looked up so many like blogs and just websites of women who are on Lupron and they've mm-hmm. all said the same thing. Like for the most part, they've all gained weight and I've actually lost weight since I've my ovarian removal and I haven't worked out as much since then. So I kind of feel like there's some truth to it. <laughs> that's so funny. I don't know though. No, that's, I mean, a lot of this anecdotal stuff is like, I think without being like the MDs or the doctors or the studies, like we're going through it. Like we can kind of, I think as women, there's some clout that we hold about what our bodies are responding to. I am on a letrozole vacation right now. I was so tired of being, I've been on the pill for about a year and four, no, six months now, year and five months. And I, I like gain weight. Like it's my job, like whether I work out or not. And, you know, I think whether, I don't know if it's the effects or I don't know if it's the letrozole. Like, I don't know if it's like the chemo that just won't go away. And so I pretty much told my oncologist, like, is there anything we can do? Like, is there an alternative? Can I take a break? And so he's giving me four weeks of like a little vacation. And so I'm going to go back on Letrozole next Wednesday. So it's been almost four weeks and I've continued to gain weight. Like it does not matter. I'm still, the moods are the same. Like everything is the same. So I'm just like, well, that didn't help outside of addressing the fact that it might not be the Letrozole. It must be something else. And I never thought it would be the shock. Like, that's Indeed. such a interesting, like, I don't know, maybe it's because I get the shot every 12 weeks that it's kind of out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. But it's, like, working its damage constantly. <laughs> well, and that's what, like, because I think I started the Lubron shot last August, and even since last August, I've gained, I mean, I've definitely gained weight um, since then. And then I came off 
I decided it must have been January or February. I was like, I don't want to take Lubron anymore. So I kind of just quit, which I don't recommend. But I kind of just quit going in there and getting them because I was getting the monthly one. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And I was just tired of, like, having to go in there every month. I'd have to sit in, like, the chemo bag because that's where they did their shot. Mm-hmm. And I was, like, the first time I went in there for my shot was in the chemo bag. And I had, like, the worst anxiety because I hadn't been in a chemo bag since I had chemo. Exactly. Yeah. So that, mm-hmm. I mean, I know. And that's what I talked about on Instagram last week Mm -hmm. I know not everybody that's not what's best for everybody to just go get their ovaries removed because you don't want to take Lubron anymore (laughs) (laughs) but I mean I was comfortable with it and fortunately for me I've never I've never been one of those people who has to have kids or like I'm not going to be devastated if I never have my own biological children it's just not uh like a Mm. factor I'd rather and my gynecologic oncologist is such an honest I absolutely love her she's very honest she's very brash and she told me one time she was like what good is it if you have biological children if you die right Um, yeah and that's harsh it's very harsh not everybody wants to hear that from their doctor but in a sense she's true like she was it was right Mm. so yeah. We, we say that's a truism up here. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For sure. Yeah. Wow. Uh, that's, yeah, that's, uh, that's probably a, a whole blog. <laughs> I know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, and I think it's like everyone's personal decision. I think even trying to figure out what type of surgery to have um, with reconstruction or no reconstruction at all. Do you feel, um, since I still have my ovaries and now I'm just considering after our conversation, maybe having them removed. Cause yeah, I don't want the shot anymore. <laughs> and it'd be yeah. nice to lose 10 pounds. Um, but you know, in terms of like identity and body parts and gender, can you speak to a little bit about having a mastectomy and then also going through the, what was it? The orthorectomy? Am I pronouncing mm-hmm. that right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think, I mean, it's definitely, for me, the mastectomy, like, there was no question in my mind. That's what I wanted to do. Um, what I found interesting, which um, when I decided I wanted to have my mastectomy, my boyfriend, who I was dating at the time, um, he, him and his mom were, like, ah, they were against it. Like, they really? did not want it to happen. And I remember him and I were sitting on our front porch swing one night, and he told me he was like well I just don't want you like 50 years down the road to be upset with your body and not be comfortable with your decision like have insecurities and I thought at the time I was like you don't know me then because like I'm I don't get insecure over stuff like that (laughs) right um but it's I kind of felt like it was more I think it's as much as breast cancer has come along and how it's not as taboo anymore I think there are still a lot of taboo people still look at it in a taboo light sometimes and I kind of felt like that's where him and his mom were coming from like it it had to do with like my appearance and I mean those are my breasts I'm a female you're supposed to have breasts as a female Mm -hmm. um and then I can only imagine what he would say now that my ovaries are removed (laughs) but I did kind of have um I remember my last period I had 
it must have been, I think it was like a month before I got my ovaries removed. And I do remember thinking that day, I was like, wow, like, this is the last time I'm ever going to have a period. It's just so weird <laughs> to think like, I don't know if it ever, I know some people say like they feel like less of a female now that they don't have ovaries or like, that's why people who have never even had cancer, but I know some people I know they didn't want to have a hysterectomy um, when it was recommended to them because they just didn't want to feel like less than a woman, I guess. I've never felt like that. Like I feel the same. I don't even realize I don't have ovaries half the time. And I think that's where it's helped me is I'm very secure with myself. Like, cause I even remember thinking, cause I'm not dating anybody now. Like, what is it going to be like when I start dating somebody and I have to tell them, you know, I don't have ovaries. Like mm. we can't naturally produce a baby. And, um, my aunt, I was talking to her about it and she was like, you know what, if they're not the one, then they're yeah. not going to get that. If they're the one though, like they'll accept that they'll be, you'll be fine. Mm-hmm. So I've never really, yeah, I don't know. It's just never really bothered me. I don't know why. (laughs) The summer after I ended chemo, I went on a trip. It was with the organization First Distance. Oh, Um, yes, I've heard of them. They do like, are they adventure? Yeah, so they do these little, um, like I went kayaking in Oregon, um, but it's a, bunch of cancer survivors it's all different types of cancer um and you go on these retreats I think it was probably like a week long I think but we went kayaking they have like rock climbing and um ice climbing I think they have surfing um but that was really it was a really good experience it uh, experience it was nice to be surrounded by people who did understand mm-hmm. and I've always thought it would be like interesting to go on a retreat with strictly like breast cancer patients um, because I mean all cancer patients some like you are kind of drawn to them because they do understand you but especially breast cancer patients it's yeah maybe it's because I've had breast cancer I don't know sometimes I feel like it's a little different because there's hormones involved and there's like you're, and I remember a friend telling me she had lymphoma, stage four lymphoma. Oh, wow. She was diagnosed at 26, a year before I was diagnosed. Mm-hmm. And I remember her telling me, and I mean, she was stage four and she knew I was stage one. And she was like, I just, she was like, I would be terrified if I were you. Like you're losing your body, like a piece of your body. She said, I didn't have to lose that. Mm. And I was like, wow. Like I never thought about it like that. Right. Like, <laughs> I know, I know. It's it's weird too because occasionally like, I have just these thoughts also of like, well, can't I just have a recurrence already and get it out of the way, right? Like, yeah. can't it just come back and maybe stage four because I'm tired of constantly worrying about it. I'm like, oh my god, this is so weird to have these thoughts. Um, and then you know, talking to people who are diagnosed at stage four who are like, oh, you're so lucky, or not that it's a comparison game, but like what I want to talk about also on podcasting and on our blog and in our communities is like, what is the right language to use? How to describe it? What, yeah. what the right language for you is might be different for me. Like I am okay with the term survivor. Other people hate the word and they want to say I'm someone living with cancer or, you know, everyone has like the right vocabulary that they want to use. And it's such a personal choice and conversation, but I want to bring light to it too, because even from the caregiver side, a lot of people, don't even know how to respond to to us to our like community so no, I think that would be really um 
I think that would be really cool just to, like, I would love to, like, do something, like, with people of different stages because I do think that's interesting because sometimes I do see a division mm-hmm. amongst the breast cancer community, and I think a lot of it is communication. Like, we just don't know what to say to each other. Like, right. we don't know because some people, like you said, they don't like the term survivor. They like to use thriver, and I think it's just we we're all so different. Like. Right. It's yeah. hard. Yeah, so I'm sure this is not going to be our last conversation either. I'm sure we'll continue yeah. it on. And yeah, I'm glad we're able to connect and we'll go from there. Crystal, oh my God, I don't even know what to say. Like you, I feel like you've just like changed my mind. I have a doctor's appointment coming up next week and I have so many questions for him. So watch out. But yeah, I think you shared such touching points we talked about relationships different drugs being BRCA positive and being diagnosed not just under 40 but under 30 so thank you so much for sharing your story with us I know this will be the beginning of so many more conversations to happen so thank you again